0: I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part four in the series, Practicing the Way Simplicity. Spiritual formation writers and thinkers often talk about one dimension of simplicity that has been largely lost on modern church culture the simplicity of speech. In 2006, if you guys know this story, beloved sitcom star, Michael Richards, fell from grace. Richards, if you didn't know, played Cosmo Kramer on Seinfeld, arguably the greatest sitcom of all time. I will entertain healthy debate that argues for either The Simpsons or Friends, as Possible contenders for that same title, greatest sitcom of all time. But I will suffer no foolishness about the office. Get out of here with all that, just so you know. I'm just trying to warm you guys up. Last week, man, I was listening to Bethany up here, and she just kept begging for a response from you guys. I was like, just keep moving. Bethany, keep moving. So are you with me? Are y'all awake? Yeah. Great, okay. I guess nobody cares about the office enough to defend it, which is great. We're on the same page. What? Oh my. No. No. But hey, thanks for engaging. Jesse, is that you? Yeah, I appreciate it. All right. Anyway, more than a decade before the vicious and inconsistent, unthinking mob mentality of the thing we now call cancel culture, Michael Richards fell from public grace. He was performing a stand-up comedy set in Hollywood, California when a group of noisy hecklers began to distract and upset him. And the entire scene captured on video. Richards became unhinged. He started shouting racial slurs and violent threats before a stunned and disgusted crowd. People started fleeing the scene. The incident was widely reported, doing presumably some degree of irreparable damage to Richards' career. And it was interesting when he talked about it later. He said, everyone that was there took the brunt of that anger and hate and rage. And I'm concerned about more anger and hate and rage. I'm not a racist, and yet it comes through. It fires out of me. A few years later, Richard seemed to summarize that weird paradox when playing himself on an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. In it, He becomes enraged with another character on the show, and in obvious reference to the incident, he shouts at this other character, if only there were a horrible name that I could call you that would make you as angry as I am. It comes through. It fires out of me. A few of us will find ourselves in a predicament quite like Michael Richards, but I suspect all of us can relate to that sense of surprise at your own words, at your ability to articulate something awful and regret in the wake of those words. Let's read something Jesus had to say about this in Luke chapter 6. Look down at Luke 6, beginning with verse 43. Jesus says, No good tree bears bad fruit Dr. Francis Collins is a geneticist who led something called the Human Genome Project, widely renowned as one of the greatest scientific minds of our time. He also happens to be a follower of Jesus. And Collins argues that the genetic code of human beings is a kind of living language. He says that our ability to speak is what sets us apart from the other animals and organisms on earth. In other words, this is a scientific way of saying what we all know words matter. The world's Written archives and historic speeches come to us by the way of words and language, from the theology of C.S. Lewis to the stories of Flannery O'Connor and the essays of Joan Didion, the lyrics of David Bowie, the sermons of Dr. Martin Luther King, Jr., the Bible itself, the documented teachings and sayings of Jesus. It's all words and language. So was that venomous hate that fired out of Michael Richards, which is why theologian Dallas Willard argued that our capacity to communicate with words is, and I quote, the main thoroughfare of evil in human life. The mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Here's that same line from a few different translations of the same verse, for whatever is in your heart determines what you say. Or, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Or, the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus says that a good man brings good things out of the evil stored up in him. And an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. Listen to this. For by your words, you will be acquitted. And by your words... You will be condemned. Yikes. Later, the New Testament writers will pick up on this warning and elaborate further, calling the tongue, or our ability to speak, a restless, untamable evil. James writes, The tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great force is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals and birds and reptiles and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. In Michael Richards' words, it fires out of me. I like words a lot. For as long as I can remember, I've enjoyed words, the way they fit together on a page or in a sentence. And for as long as I can remember, I have understood the power of words to do good or to do evil. And Jesus says that both possibilities are irrevocably, irrevocably tethered to what's inside us. There have been, I'm ashamed to admit, times in my life more than I'd like to admit in which I found myself willing and able to lower a pail into a deep reservoir of selfish and petty woundedness or anger or even hatred and to draw up from it words. Words intended to injure or even to destroy. So often I've been in arguments with my wife Abby or with a close friend And I will find in myself the ability to articulate something dreadful or something cruel or dark or evil. And I think of Jesus' words from the overflow of these things in my heart. And then, of course, we use these apologetic expressions to whisk them away when the embers have cooled, or I I didn't mean that, I was just upset. And there can be an element of truth to that, but it comes from somewhere, Now, combine all this with our unprecedented access to communication and our unprecedented ability to communicate. At just about any given time, most people can reach into their pocket and in a matter of seconds broadcast words to a number of people that far exceeds the amount with whom we have any real relationship or connection or context. Words loosed into cyberspace become weapons. Words Said and words received the yardstick by which we determine who is worthy of life or else condemnation. This week, I read that the banjo player from uh, the band Mumford and Sons, not exactly known for their edginess, no disrespect whatsoever to any Mumford fans in attendance. I just think of Mumford and Sons kind of like Coldplay. Sorry, Michael Dumont, if you're listening. Um, kind of like this era's you know, safe suburban mom rock or something? Starbucks rock. Maybe that's a little more accurate. Uh, It's kind of like Hootie and the Blowfish for the 2000s, you know, Mumford and uh, Coldplay. And again, no no disrespect. I happen to have loved Hootie and the Blowfish circa 1994. I saw them in concert. You were there. You remember that? It was great. I was right up front, man, Hootie. He's not actually Hootie. That's just the name of the band. Anyway, And my God, did you guys know this? That record, the uh, debut record from Hooting and the Blowfish, Cracked Rear View, it's called. It went double diamond in the United States alone. That's 20 million records, ladies and gentlemen. Now, maybe you don't find that impressive, but listen to this. For comparison, think of today's noteworthy pop performers, you know, someone like a, a Justin Bieber. I say performer because... To say artist or musician would be a stretch. But think of Justin Bieber's best-selling record. I looked this up. Five million copies. Five million copies to Hootie and the Blowfish. 20 million plus in the United States alone, man. Serious Hootie numbers. Anyway, how did we get here? Oh, right, right. So (laughs) Hootie was great. Hold my hand. And Tab is standing back there with an acoustic guitar like he's ready to launch into a Hootie track. And you know Tab could cover some Hootie and sound just like it. Couldn't he? I just imagined it. We should, let's talk. (laughs) Uh, No disrespect to Mumford fans. It's kind of like Hootie and the Blowfish for the 2000s. I like Hootie and the Blowfish. Anyway, the banjo, banjo player for Mumford and Sons, which is already a dorky sentence, And this is about to get even weirder. He was made to leave the band and issue this sniveling apology because he mentioned via Twitter that he had read read Andy Ngo's controversial book, Unmasked, and that he found it, quote, important, and that he thought the author was brave. He didn't even explicitly endorse the book, per se, or ask anyone to read it. It seemed clear enough that his reaction to it was positive, but it was a gentle kind of positivity. So okay, the the M- Mumford banjo guy likes this Antifa exposé book. Andy, no, if you weren't aware, is a journalist from Portland infamous for his conservative political views and for antagonizing Antifa. No, is a Vietnamese-American, he's gay, he's an atheist, so he doesn't really fit the right-wing stereotype. But that hasn't stopped his political opponents from hating his guts and assaulting him and boycotting or vandalizing stores that carry his books because they don't like his political position. And finding out that the banjo guy from Mumford (laughs) read this book and liked it to some degree was apparently too much for some people to handle, and the backlash was swift and severe. His uh, eventual apology began... Over the last few days, I have come to better understand the pain I caused by the book I endorsed. A few words, a tweet, seemed to have ended this dude's career, at least for now, which just reminded me of the power of words, for better or worse. When the world is rational or when it is insane, words are powerful, overflowing with the capacity for blessing or for cursing, for life and death, to build up or to destroy the person saying or receiving them. And knowing this, the historic way of Jesus has approached the combustible potential for words, not with vows of silence or becoming the moral word police telling people what they can and can't say, but with the ancient spiritual discipline of simplicity of all things. For the past few weeks, we've been studying the ancient spiritual discipline of simplicity here on Sunday nights and learning what it means to put it into practice in smaller groups that meet throughout the week that we call City Communities. Now, if you know anything about the practice of simplicity, if you heard that term before, maybe your mind goes to minimalism, which is the disciplined life's work of purposefully restricting the amount of finances and possessions in your life in order to better embrace freedom and generosity. This is aspect of Jesus' practice of simplicity. It's huge, and we'll begin that part of the conversation soon. But simplicity, at least as a spiritual discipline, is not a lifestyle trend. It is not a self-help fad. So before we've begun the conversation about externals, things like money and possessions, we've been talking about the internal. We talked about the simplicity of life, simplicity of the heart. Last week, our friend Bethany was here to teach on simplicity that flows from spirit-cultivated disposition of contentment. This week, we're talking about a dimension of this practice well represented in the writings of the early church of thinkers and theologians throughout church history, but that has been, I think, largely forgotten in the public church square. And that is the simplicity of speech. We're taking the work and thinking that we're doing on the inner person and bringing it into the way that we talk. Why? Because Jesus told us that the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. So don't hear simplicity of speech and think that it boils down to talking less. For some of us, in certain contexts, that may be the case. But really, what it means for all disciples of Jesus is the disciplined effort to bring everything we say into alignment with Jesus' heart. Remember, simplicity in the Christian tradition is synonymous with focus and depth as an affront to the shallow and the superficial. And this applies to the way that we talk. Like all of the spiritual disciplines, it's based on the life of Jesus himself. And simplicity of speech helps us understand the adaptation process of becoming like Jesus. What I mean is that we tend to go on and on about becoming like Jesus. It's one of the main goals of discipleship, but none of us are going to become like Jesus in every way, meaning none of us are going to become 30-year-old Galilean Jewish men from the ancient Near East. What we mean when we say become like Jesus is a bit like asking the question, what would Jesus do if he were you? What would Jesus do, for example, as a young mom or as a husband? What would Jesus do as an artist or a teacher or an engineer or a counselor? What would Jesus do if he were your age, your gender, your season of life? What would Jesus do if he lived here and now in your context? And God has given you a unique wiring and personality, a vocation, a calling. What would Jesus do if all of those things were in his immediate purview? What would Jesus do if he were outgoing if that's your personality, or shy, like, if that's your personality. What would Jesus do if he was gregarious or reserved? Or, for our purpose tonight, how would Jesus talk if he were you? When would Jesus not talk if he were you? Let me show you what I mean. If you still have your Bibles, turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 4. We were in Luke last, just a few books to the right, John, chapter 4. We're going to read... An iconic dialogue between Jesus and a woman from Samaria, and I want you to pay attention to the way that Jesus guides this exchange. The Gospel of John chapter four, verse four. The story goes, Now Jesus had to go through Samaria, so he came to sit in it or came to a town in Samaria called Sikr, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. Verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given, he would have given you living water. Sir. The woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank from it himself as did, as did also his sons and livestock? Verse 13, Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir... Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem, "'Woman,' Jesus replied, "'believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth.'" The woman said, "'I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes,'' He'll explain everything to us. Then, after all that, Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, am He. Now, In the way of gospel dialogues, this is a lengthy one. And notice the way that Jesus draws her out in conversation, the way he speaks candidly and with kindness to someone that in his time and place was deemed unworthy of his time, inappropriate for private conversation. Remember that line, Jews and Samaritans don't speak to one another. Jesus balances his gentleness, his willingness to talk to this woman at all against uh, social taboos with his willingness to confront sin. And even then, he does that with the intent not to condemn, but to build up or to bring what he called eternal life. Now, this is just one story, but if you read the Gospels, you'll find that the greatest teacher who ever lived was also the greatest pastor who ever lived with exactly the right words for exactly the right time every time. Jesus was always in tune with the moment. He reads not only the room, but the heart, and he deduces a person's capacity to receive what he has to say and in what way. But look at this. Turn a few pages to the right to John chapter 8. Lest we miscast Jesus as, you know, Ned Flanders, a deflated, cowardly youth pastor with no strong words in his vocabulary. Let's read one more exchange, this time between Jesus and the religious leaders. Look at John chapter 8, beginning with verse 42. Jesus said to the religious leaders, If God were your father, you would love me, for I have come here from God. I have not come on my own. own. God sent me. Why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear what I say. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Yikes. Jesus knows in the moment, in an instant, When a situation calls for a gradual wooing or a gentle blessing or a word of encouragement, or in this case, a sharp rebuke, this is an emotional intelligence beyond compare, a discipline of speech alien to our time and place. And yes, this is a very high bar of aspiration, but that is the idea, to learn to talk like Jesus. Or, put another way, how would Jesus talk if he were you? But we're also asking ourselves, when would Jesus not talk if he were you? I think of Jesus before Pilate. The story goes, very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, teachers of the law, the whole Sanhedrin made their plan, so they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priest accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply and Pilate was amazed. This aspect of the Jesus story is so crucial that it was predicted hundreds of years before it came to pass. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth mouth. Here, Jesus' silence is actually an act of subversive rebellion. It reflects his profound trust in God. If you read through the gospel, sometimes Jesus deliberately generates controversy with his words, and other times he refuses to engage controversy with his words. Sometimes he does answer But his answer is cryptic or parabolic or obscured with metaphor. Or sometimes he just walks away from a conflict. In his book, The Power of Silence, Robert Cardinal writes, Jesus is so impure, (laughs) imperturbable, The word is complete. It's like there's a different language up there all of a sudden. He's so calm and so peaceful that one might think he does not hear the howling of the crowd, which is drunk with hatred. Pilate does not understand the use of such an extraordinary silence. He's confronted with God's silence in the midst of the howling of men who are drunk with irrational hatred. This event contains for us a doctrine and a teaching. In the school of Jesus, with our heart, understanding and will wide open, let us allow God to to introduce us into his silence and diligently learn to love and to live in this same silence. Jesus' earliest disciples believed that this aspect of discipleship was fundamental to following Jesus. They wrote, if you suffer for doing good and then you endure it, This is commendable before God. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. For when they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus' act of silence was a gesture of his deep trust in God. Simplicity of speech is the disciplined effort to bring everything we say and do not say into alignment with the heart of Jesus. Jesus and the early church realized that this is a very difficult thing to do. After all, they were the ones who wrote the tongue corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, it is itself set on fire by hell, all that stuff in the New Testament. For James, Learning the simplicity of speech as a spiritual discipline was like taming a wild animal, only more difficult. All of us know how it feels to regret something that we did or did not say. And in the vast majority of those cases, the moment we regret was usually a kind of uh, immediate emotional reaction. We lashed out and we said something hurtful in the moment, or we froze up and chickened out when we knew that something needed to be said and we did not say it. This is because the way that we talk is deeply entangled in what the New Testament calls the flesh, the primal lizard brain response mechanism that is mired in sin and brokenness. And that makes this process a difficult one. Difficult, but not impossible. No human being can tame the tongue, James warns, but God can This is why Dallas Willard wrote, The disciplines are activities of mind and body purposefully undertaken to bring our personality and total being into effective cooperation with the divine order. They enable us more and more to live in a power that is, strictly speaking, beyond us, deriving from the spiritual realm itself. No human being can tame the tongue, but God can. How do we participate in that process? Step one is learn when to talk less. When you talk less, you listen more. Rocky Balboa wisely observed, you can't learn anything talking. That's a fact of life, he said. As long as you're talking, you're not listening. Now, I'll admit that this has been a challenge for me in my life. Like I said, I like words, so I like talking. I'm tangential and distracted. You remember the whole hoodie and the blowfish thing. Left to my own devices, I will talk a lot. A few years ago, I took a trip to Israel with a bunch of strangers, and I, I did my best to be kind and polite. I, I, I don't think that I was uh, standoffish or aloof, but I just kind of wanted to see Israel. I didn't much feel like trying to get to know these dozens of people on the trip, partying hard with everyone the whole time. So I found myself kind of keeping quiet and happily blending into the background as, as best as I could. And then one evening in Jerusalem, I walked from a restaurant back to my hotel with a couple of women who were in the same tour group. And there had been a lot of like a Zionist propaganda that day in particular, a lot of the whole politically corrupt support national Israel militarism stuff. And these women as Christians were conflicted and they were having a conversation about it. In many situations in my life, this would have been the kind of conversation that I would have happily barged into, dominated, desperate to demonstrate my thinking and opinions, speak my mind, and then usually later feel foolish and defeated for having shown no restraint. But on that particular evening, you know, I'd been quiet this whole time, so I figured I would just let these ladies enjoy their conversation, and I was just following them because I didn't know where the hotel was. I also have a terrible sense of direction, but I walked quietly beside them down this dark, brisk sidewalk, and I listened as they talked until eventually one of them turned to me and asked, hey, aren't you a pastor? Don't you study theology? So what do you think about all this? And I remember being kind of caught off guard, looking up and thinking for a moment, And then I did my best to answer the question sincerely without seizing my big opportunity to finally have an audience. And I've never forgotten how appreciative and gracious they were. Not because they were amazed by my profound insight, which I'm sure wasn't great, but because they specifically mentioned that they appreciated hearing from me in light of my otherwise quiet disposition on this trip. And I realized that Had I been running my mouth the entire time like I am prone to do, or interjecting, objecting, ranting, as is often my inclination, I doubt they would have even asked what I thought, let alone cared what I had to say. My wife, Abby, has been my uh, biggest inspiration To me in this regard. She's soft-spoken, if you know her, demure, but she's not actually shy and she's not silent. People getting to know her are sometimes surprised when they've assumed that she's shy because she tends to listen more than speak in, you know, public settings. But then when they get to know her, they realize that she's confident and outgoing, witty, hilarious. When she speaks, her speech is often imbued with wisdom, and discernment. And I think it rings true even more so because she doesn't constantly talk all the time. This is why the Hebrew wisdom literature claims that sin is not ended by multiplying words, but the prudent hold their tongues. Now, many of you, I realize, aren't really tempted to dominate conversation. You aren't itching to be heard. Many of you are perfectly comfortable in your own silence, and that can be great, but... It can also become a great way to nurse your insecurities or to remain stunted in immaturity or to not deal with your own issues or to nurse a grudge in your heart. So to know the difference between actually keeping silent out of trust in God or out of your own immaturity or stuntedness, ask yourself, is your tendency to keep quiet rooted in a deep confidence in God Or is it something else? Some of us, I would argue, need to learn to talk more. Everyone who follows Jesus will learn again and again that there are aspects of their personality and wiring that to be brought into alignment with the heart of God will undergo painful, difficult change. That means that the loudmouths like me will have to learn when to shut up. And it also means that those who are predominantly quiet will have to learn when to speak up. It means that I can't just fall back on, oh, well, my personality is super talkative, so blah, 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 and refuse to learn when to be silent and still like Jesus. And it means that some of you won't be able to hide behind your shyness, stunted or immature, and refuse to obey Jesus' call to speak up and to speak well. It will be hard for all of us because Christ-likeness is not natural. Jesus' silence before injustice and corruption challenges half of us. It's hard to be silent. And his bold, powerful, confident, and often confrontational speech challenges the other half of us. It's hard to speak up. We're all in the same class, under the same teacher, learning the same thing, but it confronts our personalities in different ways. So, how do we talk like Jesus? I think it begins with tell the truth and don't lie. Which seems like a given, but how much of our common everyday speech is peppered with knowing exaggeration or gossip or spin? How often do we massage details or obscure them, forcing reality through the colored filter of how we want it to sound, especially to villainize someone or to victimize ourselves? Or we use witticisms or hyperbole or half-truths to make ourselves sound more interesting or our stories more worthy of telling? And I know, I know I sound like old man Josh telling the youngsters to get off my lawn, but I am convinced that the primary cultural breeding ground for dishonesty is the damp basement floor that is social media. I have personally never met a single person whose real life voice or personality or experience is consistent with their online avatar. Part of the reason is that you can't actually project your life or personhood into you know tweets or Instagram stories, so that's a given. But the other reason, is that people lie. We create a fabricated veneer of our lives, our interests, our ideologies, our homes, our families, our vacations and faces and bodies and friendships and intellect, our voices, our sense of of humor. We scramble to say the right things and post the right hashtags for the right political and ideological causes, and I stand with so-and-so as if social media will ever be a reliable gauge of what one believes or how one lives. It's not real. You know, the only people that I've ever seen come across as genuine on social media is people who have no idea what they're doing. People that the Instagram mob would deem uncool or lame. They have no idea how to stage photographs or manipulate angles, who forget they have accounts and leave them derelict for a year before they suddenly reappear to show you their cat or something. Or, oh, hey, look, there's a big slug outside. I think I have this thing on my phone. Blessed are the uncool Instagrammers with no followers. Blessed are the uncool Instagrammers who post grainy pictures of uncool things and then forget to check if anyone responded. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Culture has issued an enormous permission slip to decorate our lives with dishonesty via social media. But to talk like Jesus, we have to tell the truth and not lie. Something that is difficult to do in the culture of social media. And on that note, to talk like Jesus, we must reject manipulation and domination and condemnation. Part of the social media image fabrication is attempting to dominate ideas by demonstrating how you are on the right side, how on the right side you can be. And usually you do that by condemning other people. Heroes need villains. Virtue signaling is a great way to show how woke you can be, but nothing quite offers that sweet, sweet high like contrasting your your greatness against someone else's depravity. So everyone who doesn't agree with your political preferences is a Nazi. That's the popular one these days. Or on the other side, everyone who cares about the poor is a socialist. Or everyone who says anything about the oppressed is a liberal, the shame of it all. Or back to the left, everyone who didn't post the right thing is complicit. Or everyone who didn't say anything is guilty of violence. Whoever points out the most violations wins. If everyone else is so bad, you can feel so good. But to follow Jesus means building people up rather than tearing them down. Look at this again, what Katie read earlier. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. Paul goes on to write, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. What if we asked ourselves, before we spoke to our friends, our communities, our spouses, our children, what if we asked ourselves, before we posted something online, will this build up and benefit the person to whom I am speaking? What if we actually lived under the authority of this command? Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. That it may benefit those who listen. And finally, to talk like Jesus, we must bless and never curse. In his incredible book, Sacred Fire, I've been reading in the mornings, this is my third go-round. Ronald Rollheiser argues that a blessing has several components. First, We bless someone when we really see them and when we let them know that they are seen and heard by us. Second, we bless someone when we speak well of them, when we just say kind, nice things about them. And finally, and this, he argues, is probably the most important thing. We bless someone when we give part of our lives away in order that they might have more life. Here's how he explains it. Good parents do that for their children in all kinds of ways. They sacrifice their lives for their children. They die, but their children live. Good teachers do that for their students. Good mentors do that for their protégés. Good pastors do that for their parishioners. And all good elders do that for the young. They give away some of their own lives to resource the young. He goes on to summarize, we bless others when we see them delight in their energy rather than feel threatened by it and give away some of our life to help resource their lives. Sadly, the reverse is also true. We curse others when we demand that they see and admire us, when we demand that they speak well of us, and when we use their lives to build up our own. A gesture of blessing feeds others. A cursing gesture feeds off of them. There's a strong word, curse. We think of cursing someone as something rare and extreme. But the sad reality is that cursing others is more ordinary and more prevalent. This is something that I've had to face as a a dry and sarcastic person by default, that turning everything into a sarcastic punchline does not bless others. It can become a kind of cursing When our response to anything is snarky or silly or insincere. When we can't even speak words of kindness to someone without twisting it into a joke. Sarcasm and humor have their place. There's value in both things in the proper context. But they can undo a blessing. Curses have many forms. When we overlook someone or ignore them because they didn't pass some test that we engineer to deem who is worthy of our attention... When we compare ourselves to others, when we're jealous of them, when we gossip about the other person, tearing them down and using their torn pieces in an attempt to build a sad little pedestal for us to stand on. When someone else got the role we wanted and we simply cannot be happy for them, cannot celebrate, cannot participate. When we see the person that got what we wanted as an affront to us, as a threat to us. When we cannot give part of ourselves away for the sake of someone else. That is what it means to curse someone. And to talk like Jesus, we must bless and never curse. And finally, to talk like Jesus, we have to learn to prophesy. Now, to prophesy simply means to listen to what God is saying and then to speak what you hear to or over another person. It rarely has anything to do with the future, but it is usually just about building up and blessing other people, usually through the lens of the scriptures and the teachings of Jesus. If you've ever had someone speak a blessing over you in a time of listening prayer, prophesy over you, you know how powerfully transformative an experience it can be. Jesus did this all the time. What if you did that on a regular basis? It bums me out how often we refuse to normalize prophecy in our own lives. We tend to think that speaking prophetically over another person is something intended for emotional prayer meetings and tear-soaked times of community prayer only. But what if you asked God what He wanted to speak over your spouse or your kids every morning, and then you told them what God said at the breakfast table? What if you wrote down the names of close friends of other people in your community and you asked God about them and you gave them a call or sent them a text or just told them on a Sunday evening, I was praying for you and I feel like this is what God has to say over you and bless that person? What if you did this kind of thing all the time? What if you worried more about blessing others than about sounding weird or getting too heavy? I think we would start to sound a lot like Jesus. So as we take what we've been learning about simplifying our lives, simplifying our hearts, nurturing gratitude and contentment, next we are talking about how all of that will begin to change the way that we talk. This week's practice is at vansity.church simplicity. Remember, taming the tongue is akin to taming a wild beast in the language of James. It is the alligator wrestling of the spiritual disciplines. And that's okay. This isn't a guilt trip. This is not an unrealistic decree to instantly master the spiritual discipline of simplicity of speech. This is, as it has always been, an invitation to become more like Jesus, to become someone who, over time, trains themselves, empowered by the Holy Spirit, to create a baseline action and reaction of blessing others who no longer has any need for gossip or posturing or exaggeration, who feels no itch to virtue signal or tear someone else down, who is completely content in their own silence and confident when the time comes to speak up. Imagine hearing those words from Jesus for the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. Imagine hearing that and instead of feeling a pang of conviction, saying, amen. That is the kind of person I want to become and I know I'm not alone in that. Let me pray that the Holy Spirit would teach us in the days and weeks to come. Thanks for listening to Vance City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Vance City financially at vancity.church/give.